Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of Talking Ball with Pat Leonard. I am the New York Daily News NFL columnist and Giants beat writer. Remember to subscribe on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Also to our YouTube page, at PL on NFL. Rate, review, subscribe. We are sponsored here by Bet Online. Football is back, and Bet Online is your number one source for all your sports wagering info with all the up to the minute stats, news scores, and matchup breakdowns. Get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals from the NFL and college football at your fingertips with Bet Online's real time updates on stats, news, and odds. From week one to the way the college football playoff and Super Bowl, Bet Online gives you access to the best football promotions and contests available anywhere online. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Remember to use our promo code BELIEVE to use to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. That was a mouthful, but here to introduce our return guest, our favorite guest, uh, a mentor of mine, a New York Times bestseller, longtime NFL columnist for the Dallas Morning News and the New York Daily News, covering the NFL since 1978. He has a new excellent book out called Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football about the 1986 team. It is the one and only Gary Myers. Gary, thanks for being here. Pat, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. We are sitting here, if I'm correct, on release day for the book, correct? It is. It's always exciting. Uh, it's my sixth book, but the, the day of the book always... There are two, there are two like landmarks here, or... Okay. When, when we get when I get the first copy in the mail from the publisher, which is usually about two to three weeks before it becomes available to the public, so that's always a big day to see it for the first time. And yeah. then publication day is always huge because now you know that, in addition to the people who pre-ordered it, who will be likely receiving it, you know, today or tomorrow, that anybody can go to a bookstore and and purchase it if they want. So that's always really pretty cool. That's awesome. And Giants fans, NFL fans, people in the New York, New Jersey area, this coming Thursday, September 14th, Thursday, 6 p.m. at Bookends in Ridgewood, Gary Myers and the great Phil Sims will be there for a book signing. Don't miss that. Get to Bookends, get to Ridgewood on Thursday. I will be there as well. Gary, we're going to get deep into the book today, but first I have to ask you, what the heck is going on with New York football? We are only two days into the New York season and everything has completely combusted and exploded. How do you explain this? You know, I was thinking about this, that on consecutive days, <laughs> has there ever been two worst days in the history of the Giants and Jets where they're both involved like this? The, the Giants just being totally humiliated at home by the Cowboys. Yeah. And although the Jets showed a lot of heart in pulling <coughs> excuse me in yeah. pulling out that game on Monday night I mean come on they just the whole offseason was about Aaron Rodgers and how much he embraced being here he was the leader that they needed he changed the culture in the in the organization not just the locker room four snaps and he's gone for the season and and who knows you know he could be 40 years old this year and mm -hmm. This is a tough injury to come back from under any circumstances. But for a 40-year-old, um, he's going to have to really want to play next year to dive into that rehab because it's a tough one. 
it's hard to wrap your head around how dramatically different the entire tone and expectations are of the season just in the last 24 hours, how it's changed. They've gone from a team with legitimate, seemingly Super Bowl aspirations and obviously needing to get there based on what they did to a team that everyone's just saying, well, they have a good defense, but they can't go anywhere. Actually wanted to ask you that point blank. Is their season essentially over? I mean, you know, is there hope of being uh, an AFC East winner, uh, a playoff team, and a team that can go deep in the AFC postseason? Is, is that all shot right now, or do you think they could still do it? Well, if you can answer the question of is Zach Wilson going to be any better than he has been the first two years and any better than he was Monday night, if the answer to that is yes, then I, I think the Jets can be legitimate AFC East contenders because their defense is so good. And, and Brees Hall is just dynamic. I mean, he's a great running back and so mm-hmm. impressed. You know, 10 months or 11 months after ACL surgery to run the, run the way he did uh, Monday night is just really, really impressive. But what, what I saw from Zach Wilson was the same in this game was the same thing I saw from the first two years. He takes the he takes the snap and he runs backwards. Yeah. You know, which makes no sense. <laughs> he, he just doesn't think it's what he, I would do. <laughs> yeah, really. That's actually not a bad idea with 300 pounders running after you. But, um, I guess he just doesn't seem like he can, pro- he processes fast enough. I, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know what the issue is, but uh, he seems very slow to pull the trigger and he doesn't have the confidence in his decision-making to go to the right spot. So instead of doing that, he just runs around and, Makes believe he's you know back in seventh grade in the schoolyard uh, <laughs> on lunch recess, you know. Um, Nathaniel Hackett is such a crucial part of whatever the Jets can accomplish this year. We know that he knows how to coach Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm. We also know that he had no idea how to coach Russell Wilson. So what yes. happens to Zach Wilson now? I, I don't know. I mean, uh, Hackett had some success in Buffalo, some success in Jacksonville, hit the jackpot in Green Bay with Rodgers being the NFL MVP two out of the three years was a disaster as a head coach in Denver, mainly because he it just seemed like Russell Wilson forgot how to play football. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it remains to be seen. The, obviously, the Jets are going to have to switch things up and how they approach it offensively. They're just not going to want the quarterback to lose games now because their defense is so good and the running game is so good. Where before with Rodgers, they were looking to him to win the game. Right. It was very interesting when I heard Garrett Wilson say after the game, and you know it's true, but he said that when Zach Wilson comes in, he goes, here comes a guy who really hasn't taken any snaps with the rest of us. Right. And it it was funny to hear that because it wasn't that long ago that the Jets were hoping Zach Wilson would be the guy they draft him number two overall. And now because Rodgers is here, even though he's been mentoring him, he's not getting a single solitary rep with the guys that he's suddenly now playing with. So you're right. Uh, trying to not only improve, but also acclimate is important. Uh, what do you think of my solution? Now, I'm trying to marry the best two worlds of most realistic and most talent like into one. My name that I think the Jets trade for here is eventually Ryan Tannehill from the Tennessee Titans because he was originally considered one of the less sexy options before the Rodgers deal happened. And Tennessee already not looking like a team that's going to go do very much. They have two young quarterbacks in the building. He had a bad week one. The Vegas odds already have him at high odds being benched 
in Tennessee. So what do you think of my idea of Ryan Tannehill to the Jets as a stopgap? Yeah, no, I, I like that. I certainly like that better than than Matt Ryan or Jameis Winston. Mm -hmm. I, I like my idea the best. Tell you, Tom Brady, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's <just been> realistic. <laughs> so wait, we're talking to, you know, the Brady versus Manning author, a guy who covered Tom Brady uh, very closely, knows Tom well. I mean, tell me, is there a shred of a possibility that Tom Brady would take that call and maybe step into Florham Park for a chat, even if he didn't end up saying yes? Well, the, the first obstacle would be that he's, you know, a, a very has a very small share in the ownership of the Raiders. And I believe that for an owner of one team to play for another, which is pretty unusual when you think about it. I don't know <laughs> that like this. They have rules for this. Why? There's no precedent. Yeah, right. But I, I think it would take three quarters vote of the owners to uh, to approve that. And you already know New England's going to say no. Miami's <laughs> going to say no. And Buffalo's going to say no. So there aren't, you know, not a lot of wiggle room there. Yeah. Whether, whether he'd want to do it or not. I do know that Tom loves New York. He's had a place here for a long time. I'm, I'm not sure he still does, but his oldest son, Jack, um, lives in New York. And he's very close to him. Um. So that would make them even closer. I believe he said Sunday at, at the um, at the ceremony in New England when they brought him back that he's not in playing shape. But um, Tom Brady's never out of shape. <laughs> you know, he just takes it so seriously with his pliability and his nutrition and all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, he he can wake up, go out of his sleep, and walk onto a football field and and be pretty effective. I would take that Tom Brady over Zach Wilson any day of the week, um, whether that's realistic or not, you know, probably not. But I mean, if you're Joe Douglas, how do you not at least call Don Yee, the agent to. and just say, can we talk to Tom or are we just wasting our time? And Agree. You have to make that phone call and make them say no, even if the answer is no. I, w I will say this too. I thought about this last night watching Rodgers uh, get carted off, not to dump on Rodgers, but it made me appreciate again Brady's longevity. Oh and like goodness. you said, the physical shape he kept himself in. And then also we we talked about it when Rodgers came to the Jets. It's like this is the Tom Brady, right? The same with Russell Wilson to Denver. It's like this idea of later in your career, go join a new team, fresh start, go and win, ready-made team. You instantly turn them into Super Bowl contenders. But it doesn't just happen, right? The, the idea that Tom Brady and the Bucks won when he leaves New England right away, that doesn't just happen. The, the idea right. that a guy plays into his mid-40s doesn't just happen. Um, that right. really you made me You can throw Matthew Stafford in there, but he you know, he was younger. Stafford, right, correct, he, correct. He, yep. he won a Super Bowl in his first year. And obviously, you know, the Jets are looking at those two situations and saying, let's, let's try to create some of that magic here. Um, yeah. But – I mean, I feel I feel bad for Jet fans. I really do because you know what a tortured group they've been. You know, for for five decades already, and and mm -hmm. the talk of the league. Uh, unlike with Brett Favre, who didn't want to be here, Rogers <clears throat> went into darkness. <laughs> Are you talking about you know your sponsor, you know the the betting app or whatever? What would the odds be that? <laughs> <laughs> Aaron Rodgers, after nearly 20 years in the league, goes into darkness and comes out saying, I want to play for the Jets. 
I mean, I could have made a fortune on that one. Um, <laughs> so, he, you know, he really embraced being in New York. He loved it. Here. I, you know, I feel bad for him. I don't know him real well. But, um, you know, I feel bad for him. I really feel bad for the Jet fans. I was at the game Monday night, and, you know, the fans didn't really get back into it until the fourth quarter when it became realistic that I had a chance to win. And then the stadium was really loud. Uh, down the stretch and then went nuts on that punt return. But I, I think everybody there was in a state of shock. And, you know, whether, whether or not Robert Sala can now, you know, get his team focused. Okay, it, we're back to Zach, but he's better because he's been mentored by by Rogers for, for the last four months. and He's going to be a different player. Whether he can sell that to them. I don't know. I think they're going to need some tangible evidence. Even the touchdown pass they threw to Garrett Wilson was not a great throw. It was a great catch. It wasn't a great throw. He threw it too far. I don't know if you'd say it inside or outside, but uh, the the DB, you know, had a really good chance to knock that ball down. And, you know, Wilson's got such great hands and he's obviously pretty strong. He just ripped it out of there and tapped it up in the air and then caught it. But even that wasn't a great throw. They're going to have to try to, to win running the ball. Yeah. And playing great defense. Yeah. And as you said, I feel bad for the Jet fans too, especially I heard preseason that, you know, the ticket prices for the Jets were just skyrocketing, going crazy through the roof. And so now you have all these people who bought tickets to see Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, it would be the equivalent of, you know, buying a ticket to see Lionel Messi right now. And he just takes the night off for load management. Right. And (laughs) so, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's tough, tough break for, for the Jet fans. And then, of course, before we get into the book, have to mention and talk about the other New York football team, our Giants, who are still looking for their first point after a 40 to nothing thrashing by the Dallas Cowboys in week one. Gary, you saw the game. You were there. Uh, is this fixable? Is this is this type of a disaster, what you saw go wrong in this game? Is this fixable? I just didn't see any passion. Um out of this team or emotion. Once things start to go wrong, it's it's like they stop playing in the middle of the second quarter, which is inexcusable. Mm-hmm. Now I know with a game that goes <clears throat> finishes up 40 to nothing, it's hard to point to one play and say it changed things. But stick with me here. Yeah. Third and third and two on the eight-yard line on the opening series. They've run the ball all the way down the field, probably half of Jones's runs with supposed to be throws and there was nobody open. So he took off and he's such a great athlete, but he and Barkley got him all the way down the field. Yep. And then if you're third and two, the giants are in four down territory that Dable wants to come out of that with a touchdown and a false start on Andrew Thomas. So yep. it moves him back five yards and the rookie center dribbles the ball back to Jones on the shotgun snap and he's got a fall on it. And then they get the field goal blocked and return for a touchdown. So instead of probably being up seven, nothing, Considering the way they had got down there, you'd think that they would have finished off that drive. So it's ended up being up seven nothing. Now they're now they're down six nothing because Dallas misses the extra point. And then the the, the Barkley the, the Dallas gets a field goal, and then I think the Barkley um, bobble and getting hit by Diggs and the interception or whatever. They I mean that shouldn't have been called an interception. That should have been a fumble. Agree, agree. But in, in any event, now they're down sixteen nothing and. You know, looking at the clock to see what time they can go home. Um, 
I, I was just really, really shocked at the lack of effort. Now, to answer your question about whether this is a major concern, you can go and say, well, it's one of 17, which is definitely true, it's, but it's just a manner in which they lost. And you're just wondering, you know, what is this team all about? And we'll find out on Sunday in Arizona, because if they don't win that game, then you have to say, you know, what, what games are they going to win this year? No Cause, doubt. Because you know, then, you know, four days later, they got to play in San Francisco. I always looked at the schedule, Pat. If they can come out of the first four, two and two, that would be good. Yep. And yep. They, beat, they beat Arizona and Seattle and, and lose to the Cowboys and, you know, possibly beat the Cowboys. I thought they had a good shot to beat them. And then the game in San Francisco on a short week is going to be really tough, even though they're staying out there to minimize the travel. But I, I think we find out a lot about what we can, what we'll see the rest of the season um, based on how they play Sunday, you know, an Arizona team that is just trying to position itself to have the first pick in the draft and then decide between uh, Caleb Williams and, and Kyler Murray. Yeah, no, well said. They start 0-3 if they lose this game, right? They're not beating the Niners. Yeah, all right, right, football. Right. So, yeah, that then you're talking about a whole other potential list of problems coming down the pike. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the the bad look of how the team responded on the field because I think even though Brian Dable took, took exception to the suggestion that effort might have been an issue in that game, I think it very much was at points, especially even – you know, you could see the defense actually played well in the first half and hard. And then in the second half, it just seemed like their shoulders were down. Wasn't as yeah. much resistance at the goal line. Right. Um, yeah. Listen, I, I know that it's, it's kind of been uh, talked about a little bit since Sunday, but I, I hate what training camp is about now. All, all they want to do is get through with their players being healthy, which obviously is a huge goal. Yeah. But these teams are not ready to play the season with so little hitting in training camp, nobody plays in the preseason games. But Daniel Jones played one series. Barkley didn't play at all. And then he gets crushed by Diggs, his first major hit of the season. And, and he costs up the ball. Listen, I had one coach uh, say to me the other day, it can't be easy, 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 hard. Meaning you can't go easy all during training camp and then go hard for the first time no in the question. season opener. And it really looked, now, the Cowboys did the same thing. Dak didn't play in the preseason. But, you know, the, the Cowboys got a couple early breaks, and they just played hard the whole way. Maybe if the Giants jumped out on top like they should have, may, maybe the tables would have been reversed. Who knows? But I, I just don't like the approach. When, when I first started covering this, you know, back in the 1800s, um, that was a joke, Pat. I said the 1800s. <laughs> I thought you said the 1980s for a second because we're thinking 1986. And I didn't bat an eye. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, two days every day in pads. Yeah. During the season, practice in pads at least twice a week. Yeah. Now you think you're afraid that the team captain is going to call the players' association if the coach makes them put the pads on in training camp. And I think what you really see is the offensive line is not ready because that has to be the mo co most cohesive unit on any team. Mm -hmm. And and not being out there, you know, for any extended period of time in these practice games, as much as everybody hates them, I, I do think that these teams are just not – they're not hitting the ground running. And a lot of them look in the first week of the pre of the regular season like it's the fourth week 
of the preseason. And it won't be till next week that they're like in football shape, having been used to being hit. So, I mean, I understand what the player association is doing. The league is doing, they're trying to keep the game safe and all that. But it, it, I think it's to the detriment of a lot of these teams that just aren't ready. Couldn't agree more. Uh, That's why it was a somber parking lot outside MetLife Stadium on Sunday. But I read in your book, Gary, that the parking lot outside Giants Stadium also used to be where the Super Bowl winning Giants slept (laughs) after a big night out on the town in Manhattan. Uh, How great are some of these stories that these guys told you, including this one where Carl Banks shared essentially that they had a system for not missing Bill Parcells' Saturday morning meetings. Yeah, I mean, they, they used to either caravan into the city or just meet up where they took car services or drove themselves. They they had a 9 o'clock meeting on Saturday morning, and, and Friday night was the night out because practice was usually over early, and, you know, it's not a heavy day on Friday. Yeah. So a lot of these guys, if they were going on the road on Saturday, a lot of them would ha- already have their bags packed in their trunks um, and if it was a home game, they got, they had to sleep in a hotel in Woodcliffe Lake, uh, in Jersey. But what they would do is in, instead of taking a chance on missing that nine o'clock meeting Saturday morning, all these guys that would go into the city and then meet up at different bars and travel around together. Um, they agreed to sleep in the parking lot to minimize the chances of sleeping through the meeting. So you, there was these, um, headlights a group of headlights uh, a caravan of headlights in the parking lot at giant stadium at four o'clock in the morning friday night or saturday in the morning depending on how you want to phrase it and they would sleep in their cars and it was fifty dollars a man to give to the clubhouse attendants uh (laughs) to come out at a quarter to nine and bang on the windows to wake these guys up and they couldn't leave the car until they make sure the player was up (laughs) <laughs> and they they then they would parade. Um, it was a tu- it was a, a tunnel, but it was a, it was a slope down into the um, um, the hallway right outside the giant locker room, an old giant stadium. So these guys would be you know half asleep, parading down the tunnel into the locker room to go sit in the team meeting on Saturday morning. But <laughs> they knew you know if, if you slept through that meeting or even worse slept through the team when the team, if it was a road game, you know, if they slept through that, you know, Parcells, you know, was likely to handing them a plane ticket on Monday, you know, back wherever they live. So, and, you know, and I make this correlation in the book and I really do think there's something to this. They took care of each other off the field on Friday nights, made sure nobody got in trouble. They made sure they all got back to the parking lot. Uh, They made sure everybody was up, so they didn't miss the meeting. And I think that carried over to Sundays. Hmm. I mean, it, it's it's kind of a connecting the dots thing, but this team was such a tight-knit group. And it wasn't like there were 40 guys sleeping in the parking lot. If there was a dozen on any given Friday night, it was probably a lot, but you know, yeah. still like 25% of the team. Um, so I, I think that the fact that they looked out for each other um, away from the field, um, correlated into them looking out for each other on the field. You tell so many great stories about both the bond they share and created their playing days. Also though, the tragedies off the field, the difficulties in life, post football careers, 
And it's just amazing how much these guys shared with you. They really bear their souls to you on both the positive and the negative. And uh, my, my main question for you right off the bat is what story that you heard early on in doing this got you going to say, there is so much more here than I ever, than I ever even realized. Like what got you going and motivated to say, this isn't just a couple, where are they nows? This is something much more than that. Yeah. I mean, now I know Phil Sims since 1979 and, and we've had a great relationship for, um, Boy, how many years is that, Pat? 44 years? Um, <laughs> I, I'm not that good at math. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, even when I was in Dallas for a bunch of years, we stayed in touch. So I, I really do like Phil a lot. I, I don't want to give away this story because it's one of the most compelling, poignant stories in the book. Okay. But as recently as eight years ago, Phil was having major problems with his back. Hmm. And he went to a giant preseason game to meet with Dr. Warren who had taken care of him when he was playing. And he goes, you know, doc, I'm not going to be able to get through the season here. Uh, and he knows, so he's working for CBS as a commentator. And so he's traveling every weekend. And Dr. Warren says, well, you know, you're going to have to come into my office in the city and we'll have to do a full workup. Phil at that point had already had three back surgeries and he was in complete agony. And so he, he he just went to the preseason game just to meet with Dr. Warren, who who ran a couple of, you know, can you touch your toes kind of tests. Yeah. Just to see the degree of pain he was in. And then he said, you know, Phil, you're going to have to come in the office. And Phil goes, I, I guess I don't have the time. I'm traveling every weekend. I can't get into the city. And where I'm going to leave this story off is that Phil left that preseason game before it even started because he really just went to meet with the doc and, and went home. And what he did to try to deaden the pain is going to blow people away. Uh, he wasn't trying to hurt himself. So I want to make sure people know that. Okay. But he, but he did something that was potentially, you know, pretty, pretty dangerous. Uh, and it didn't help anyhow. And then he wow. finally, he finally found somebody in Denver through his son, Chris, who was kind of like a, a muscle activation guy. And uh, Phil spent about four days in Denver on his way home from San Diego the following weekend. And um, and he said the guy saved his life. Because wow. when he walked out of the stadium after meeting with Dr. Warren, he said, blank me, is this the way my life is going to be? Oh. And he was he was beside himself. And, you know, you know, thank goodness that um, he found somebody that could help him because the surgeries didn't, they probably made it worse. And I know there's a lot of media people who have great relationships with Phil. Yeah. Um, because he's just that kind of guy. But I guarantee you that nobody knows the story that I told you about 65% of. And the only reason I want, I want to hold that one back is because I, I feel like there's some stories in this book that is so unique and so special and have do ha, do have a happy, a happy ending because Phil is good today. But I do want people to read it, and I feel like if I give you give away the whole thing, that'll take away from the reading experience, as well as the fact that I want people to be tempted now and buy the book. Obviously, <laughs> but um, I mean, I get, I just have like tons of stories like that in the book. That and so this is my way of answering the que your question. Yeah. After 
Phil opened up to me like that. And Phil has always been great telling me stories, but then go, don't write that. You know, <laughs> you know he's even that way as a player. He is a great storyteller. <laughs> he's amazing. But when he told me this story and was answering my questions and he mm -hmm. knew the entire conversation was on the record and really gave me a lot of detail, that's when I walked out of his house that day. Go, wow. I got this story about Phil Sims, who's a, a fairly private guy, um, that really showed how life after football has impacted him. Yeah. Then I just, I can't believe, I had no idea what I was going to run into with these other players. But I just felt like if that story existed with Phil, that everybody's got a story. And the, the thing that I think really helped, and, you know, if anybody who's watching this is, you know, a prospective journalist or a football writer or whatever you want to do, where relationships are so important, I, I felt like almost every player that I interviewed for the book that I already had a relationship with. So I went in with a built-in trust mm. and, and they were just so forthcoming. I don't remember anybody telling me anything that they said, I don't want you to write that. And, and there, there's so much in there that is so personal about these guys that I, I, you know, when I went through my notes, as I was writing, I'm going, wow, this is really powerful. And I'm so happy these guys trusted me and then didn't think twice about it. I mean, I was, uh, Pat, on some of this stuff, truthfully, I expected a phone call the next day from, you know, whoever saying, you know, I know this was a great story and you asked me really good questions about it, but, you know, I don't want my kids reading this or I don't really feel people need to know this. I didn't get any of those phone calls. So mm. that's why I think this book is, I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say, but um, I mean, I think it's a really good book and especially because it's about a team that giant fans who have been giant fans just have romanticized about and and they just love this team and the younger generation has heard about this team they all have heard about you know parcells and belichick and lawrence and sims and banks and bavaro and uh harry carson and mcconkey and all that stuff they'll, they'll learn so much about these guys uh by reading this book but I think you you hit it right off the top too about them taking care of each other. The idea and and we excerpt this we excerpted this or talked about this in the Daily News a few months ago. But the fact that Bill Parcells reveals that he has given four million dollars to twenty different players. Um, I think you mentioned in the book that he helped Bobby Johnson buy his Super Bowl ring back for thirty thousand dollars. I think it was hearing that you know, the coach taking care of the players and then the players taking care of each other, you get into, you know, not to give too much away, but Harry Carson truly being the captain of this team for life. Mm -hmm. And those relationships, especially because we all know what Bill Parcells was as a coach, right? We all know what his reputation was. Sure. It's amazing to hear and to read all of these individual stories that you mentioned in the book about people reaching out to him, him reaching out to others, um, you know, him asking maybe a few questions, but not many and cutting checks. And 
it's fascinating because you can tell, yeah, life gets in the way. It's not like these guys see each other all the time, mm -hmm. but there is a clear network that it seems like you have uncovered here of connectivity between them where it could be five years. They haven't seen each other or talked to each other, or it could be three days and they're going to be there if the other one needs them. Right. Yeah. Let's just be clear about one thing. And I know you said it right, but I want to make people sure, make sure people understand. It's yeah. not like he gave $4 million to each of All 20 right. players, right. Was, a total. I mean, I'll give you one example of, with Harry Carson. Um, in the early 2000s, Jeff Rutledge, who was the third string quarterback and, and giant fans who remember that Super Bowl 21, you know, Rutledge ran a, a fake punt that was really instrumental in, in the Giants gaining momentum in the third quarter of the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and Harry, Harry was the captain along with um, George Martin and Phil, but Harry was really considered the guy. And so he wasn't particularly close to Rutledge. Not that they weren't friendly, but it, you know, you can't be best buddies with 50 guys. Yeah. But Rutledge had a horrendous car accident around 2002, three, something like that in Tennessee. And Harry was visiting his family in Florence, South Carolina. Okay. And, and Rutledge was lucky he was alive. He was driving on a highway and there was an 18 wheeler in front of him. And he was looking down at his phone, which obviously we're not supposed to do. And nobody should ever go. And he looks up and sees the 18 wheeler and, and tried to avoid hitting it and hit a guardrail. Oh. And he broke every bone in his face, which is unimaginable. Oh my God. Anyway, for however long he was in the hospital, um, Harry then found out that Rutledge was back at his home in Nashville. He's in South Carolina and drives eight hours, part of it through the Blue Ridge Mountains, which I would think driving through mountains is, I, th I drive over the Bear Mountain Bridge and to get there, I hate going around and around and that's a, not a really big deal. The Blue Ridge Mountains, I think is pretty extensive and harrowing. And so Harry drives eight hours to spend two hours with Rutledge, shows up unannounced. Incredible. It's back in his car and drives back to South Carolina. And he said, I just had to make sure he was okay. And you know, I talked to oh. Rutledge. Yeah, I talked to Rutledge about it. And he said, that's just the kind of guy Harry is. And th that is true. And these text chains are incredible. You know, there's a bunch of them, usually like 10 or 12 players on them. You know, some of them overlap with the 1990 team that guys like Everson Walls is on one of them because he's really friendly with Pepper Johnson and, and some of the other, and, and Carl Banks. So he's on one. Okay. And then there's one that, you know, is just the 86 team. And truly when, when there's a problem, they either get on that text chain or call Harry or they call Parcells. And, uh, I, you know, I wrote a lot about Mark Bavaro having problems with long-term COVID mm -hmm. and nobody knew about it. And so when I got home from spending, you know, two or three hours in his house in Massachusetts, I called Sims, I called Harry, I called Parcells, and I called Carl Banks. And I said, do you, you guys know what's going on with Bavaro? And Mark is such a private guy. Now, he's mm -hmm. a great talker now. He didn't say a word when he played. But, but he had kept this to himself because he was really, really struggling. I mean, it was terrible. And so I said to those guys, 
you know, I think Mark would really appreciate hearing from you guys. He, hmm. you know, he's kind of been off the grid here a little bit. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but he's not going to call anybody for help. But I know he'd like to hear from you. And, and they all did. And that, was, that was a really jarring excerpt um, in the New York Post. Uh, go read it if you didn't check it out already. Um, it will show you the types of depths that Gary goes to in this book. I mean, yeah, like you said, um, he had COVID, long COVID, uh, contemplating suicide. Um, these types of severe, um, you know, stories of life and death. Frankly, it's a it's a human story, is what you tell here about a team yeah. that everybody knows so well, and um, you know, just really powerful. And one thing I also stuck out to me is it sounds like Gary seems to me, you have uncovered the thing that Bill Belichick will talk about, <laughs> which yeah, is right. the 1986 giants because Bill Belichick is quoted in this book. Yeah. He never, well, he never talks to people. He doesn't know this it, kind of thing. You know, it's, it's funny because Bill and I hadn't talked for a long time. Uh, I don't think he was happy with some of the things I was writing about spy date in 2007. <laughs> Can't imagine um, why. Yeah. Yeah. So we went, you know, about 15 years without talking to each other. And, you know, he'd answer my questions at press conferences, but never with any depth or, mm. you know, he, he really wouldn't even acknowledge that I was, had driven up from New York to his press conferences or whatever. But I sat next to him at a Hall of Fame meeting in 2020, just by chance that we sat next to each other. And I just decided that either it's going to be a really long day sitting next to a guy for eight hours and not talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to try to break the ice and, and see where we were at. You know, and he just been eliminated by Tennessee in what turned out to be Brady's last game uh, in the 2020 playoffs. And um, and this was only two day, two or three days later after his season had ended. And so, you know, I got up, I shook his hand. And I said, it's really nice to see you. And we had a great time for eight hours. I mean, it, I saw the other side of Belichick that people told me always existed, but I never saw for myself. Wow. We, we were kind of telling stories and he was asking me questions about the Hall of Fame process and things of that nature. So then we became email pals. Whoa. Um, but, you know, not like every week, maybe twice a season. Yeah. We, I just, you know, I'd wish him luck at the beginning of the season. And then sometimes he'd email me with a question about what was going on with the Hall of Fame process for the, for the next year. You know, just simple stuff like that. So when I decided to do this book, I reached out to him and I said, I'll come up during training camp. I'll meet you at two o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning, like the end of your day or the beginning of your day, whatever, whatever works for you. I'll be there. I just need a half an hour. And he said, I want to cooperate with you, but I'm much better on email. I'll give you much better answers on email. Hmm. So, you know, I didn't want to say, no, I have to do it in person. And then he'd give me three word answers just to, <laughs> Teach me a lesson. Prove his point. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, you know, send me as many questions as you want. So I sent him 15 questions. And uh, it took him about, and I said, no rush, because I wasn't in a hurry at that point. I had six months before I had to start writing. Hmm. And I, I told him, you know, answer one, and you know, just take your time. Do a couple one day, a couple the next day, whatever. When you get done, just send it back to me. So he answered, and all the, the only thing I told him, I said, I'm not asking you any Patriots questions because I knew, and I didn't need to. Yeah. And the only thing that kind of 
crossed that line a little bit into the Patriot territory was one of my questions, and it's the only one he didn't answer, was how would you compare the 86 Giants to whatever you consider to be the best of your Patriot teams? He wouldn't said, answer it, huh? I said, I'm just trying to c- compare eras here. You know, <laughs> how the game has changed and things like that. And his answer was, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, did he put like a little emoji in there instead or something? Yeah. I don't know. You should have quoted him on I don't know. That was pretty I, good. I, I did in the uh, – I mentioned that story in the acknowledgments at the end. But <laughs> he sent me like a 2,500-word uh, document answering it, and his answers are great. So they're all sprinkled throughout the book and, you know, where it was relevant. And um, there's some really funny stuff about Belichick there just from the players talking about him. You know, how they, when Parcells elevated him to defensive coordinator, there was like a, a mini revolt on the team. You know, the Parcells, like, how can you do that? What does this guy know? He's never played in the NFL. And then they found out the guy was a freaking genius <laughs> who can make them a lot of money. And, they, you know, they, they love them after that. There are so many layers to this book. You know, there's Harry Carson admitting that if he could go back and do it over again, given all the trials and tribulations of football and what he sees guys go through, he wouldn't have done it. Uh, But then there's the light side. There's Phil McConkey writing the grass is greener, my ass on the chalkboard for the entire season. And this is, I was rolling laughing. There is Lawrence Taylor. You, You wrote this. Lawrence Taylor acknowledged that Sean Landetta had won the AFC championship game for them. And LT considered punters one step above the league's urine collectors. I love that. (laughs) The Landetta chapter on Sean Landetta, the punter conquering the Manhattan nightlife is a must, a must read. It's I I was laughing as I was writing it. (laughs) (laughs) And, and Sean, you know, that's another case where, I mean, Sean was really telling me, I didn't ask him for intimate details, but you can assume things. Yeah. Um, he got on the uh, invite list all the time for um, the penthouse. Bob Guccione, I think was his name, mm. was the publisher of Penthouse. And he had a, a huge townhouse in Midtown Manhattan. And through Dave Jennings, um, Lindetta met the PR guy for Penthouse, who was an older gentleman, one of those... Uh, you know, old time New York PR guys. I got you. And, yeah. And he would always invite Sean to these parties. And he was the only athlete there. And he's thinking to himself, I'm the punter for the Giants. The quarterback <laughs> from the Jets isn't here. The center fielder from the Yankees isn't here. You know, the shooting guard from the Knicks isn't here, but I'm here. And he'd be surrounded by these penthouse pets. <laughs> and um so good. And his his funniest line in there was, um, and he was trying to downplay it, you know, like I'm, I, you know, I was 25 years old, I was a single guy, I didn't drink, I didn't do drugs, so I like to date women, big deal, you know, why is everybody making a big deal about it? I said, well, I guess it was, you know, some of the women you went out with. He goes, yeah, a lot of them have Miss in front of their names as their title, and I go, huh? He goes, you know, like Miss New Jersey, Miss America, Miss this, Miss July. <laughs> yeah. And his teammates commenting on how is this guy? He's walking around with this little belly and he's getting all this. It's so good. So good. You can see the bond. Um, you can you can see it all. This really is a, an amazing book that once you start, uh, you are not going to put down. 
Um, Gary, I could talk about it all day. I know you have more to do. This is, of course, the big release day. But don't forget, everybody, September 14th, Thursday, 6 p.m., bookends in Ridgewood, Phil Sims, Gary Myers, Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football. Remember, we are sponsored by Bet Online. We're also sponsored by Estate 98 Coffee. It's an Essencia Cafe from El Salvador. Takes you three seconds to make. I drink it all the time when I'm doing talking ball. Gary, really happy for you with this book. I think it is uh, a home run, and I think every Giants fan and NFL NFL fan is going to love it. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's my pleasure. Anytime, Pat. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.